This is Tech Refactored. I'm your host, Gus Hurwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center at the University of Nebraska. Every day, it seems that cybersecurity is in the news. From data breaches to ransomware to national security concerns, these incidents have become a feature of everyday life. And they affect everything and everyone from individuals and small businesses to large multinational co uh, corporations and even nation states themselves. Today, we're joined by Asaf Lubin to help us understand the challenges of cybersecurity generally, and in particular, to think about the role that cybersecurity insurance might play in addressing some of these concerns. Asaf is an associate professor of law at Indiana University Maurer School of Law and a fellow at the university's Center for Applied Cybersecurity Research. His research includes the regulation of cybersecurity harms, liabilities, and insurance, as well as policy design around governmental and corporate surveillance, data protection, and internet governance. Asaf, welcome to Tech Refactored. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So I'd like to start with a bit of a puzzle of a question, perhaps. When I talk to people about cybersecurity and how to improve cybersecurity, and even the fact that I teach cybersecurity at a law school, very frequently the, the response is, isn't cybersecurity a technical issue? So I, I wonder if I could just start by asking, what, what is cybersecurity law and policy? And aren't these just purely technological issues? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Reality is that the last decade or two have introduced an array of cybersecurity-related regulation. Those take the form of either administrative regulation through agencies like the FTC or SEC, or they might take the form of private litigation, data breach class action suits, or action through contract. Uh, and so over time, there's now a body of law that we might call cybersecurity law that tries to give a comprehensive answer to some of the same questions that we're seeing across different fields. So let, let's dive into that a little bit. You started your response there by mentioning administrative agencies like the FTC. Um, what What is... Uh, the role of these agencies and what are some of the agencies involved in this space? Yeah, take the SEC. The, IC, the SEC's role is in part to regulate the markets and to ensure that um, um, markets are run effectively. And in the age of cybersecurity, as you just uh, demonstrated in your introduction, companies are subject to all kinds of data breaches and ransomware attacks. And as a result of that, there is an expectation that an agency like the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, will be able to regulate these markets in this area. So, for example, in 2018, they introduced uh, a guidance to these companies on how they effectively disclose cybersecurity incidents to their investors. Um, and we're still seeing all kinds of companies doing a bad job at disclosing these incidents, despite the guidance, which leads to enforcement actions by the SEC against them. So the idea there is the Security is an Exchange Commission, SEC, they're really focused on protecting investors. I don't want to invest in a company that has experienced a, a material, a data breach, or that has bad cybersecurity practices. So the, the SEC is making uh, those companies disclose that information. And more broadly, by doing that, that hopefully will improve the overall investment in cybersecurity that these companies have. Yeah, and I, I actually believe in security by disclosure. 
That is to say, I think that markets can evolve more effectively and consumers, regulators, legislators can understand the evolution of cybersecurity threats, liabilities, technologies in a more effective way if we have better information that is flowing across the markets and into the hands of both individual consumers, but sophisticated elites as well. So what, why is that sort of disclosure so important? I mean, we, we read the news. This is how I started. Every day I open the newspaper or go to mynewspaper.com and read the newspaper online. And I see cybersecurity uh, stories. I, I know we all know these are issues. What, what does it matter if companies are disclosing uh, information about what they're doing or incidents that they experience? Take ransomware attacks is one example. If we are all concerned about the rise, the wave of cybersecurity attacks like ransomware, which have now reached a point that there is one ransomware attack every four seconds across the globe. If that's a concern to us, then the only way for law enforcement to take a role in enforcing against this concern is if they, they're aware of these cybersecurity breaches when they take place and they have a better grasp of the magnitude and nature of, of these attacks. If companies, for reputational reasons, are not disclosing information when they're attacked, the, the concern is that a lack of information would result in lack of enforcement. And so that's on the law enforcement side, but the same is also true in the investor side. So the ability of the markets to self-regulate in order to ensure that those uh, who do have a good job at cybersecurity are rewarded for their good cybersecurity so there, there's a mantra out there. I, I'd like to get your take on this mantra and then ask a follow-up question. The mantra is uh, there, there are two types of companies out there, those that have been attacked and those that don't know that they've been attacked um, or uh, breached or whatever cybersecurity instant terminology that you want to put in there. The, the idea is that um, everyone gets uh, uh, attacked or their servers get compromised or what's not nowadays. First, I, I'd like to ask whether you think that that is uh, uh, still the case. Um, that uh, that saying is a couple of years old at this point. Um, and then the, the second, the follow-up question is, uh, assuming that it's at least somewhat true, is it a blameworthy sort of thing if, if someone, if a company's systems are, are compromised? Is it the sort of thing that a company should really feel embarrassed about or investors should be concerned about if a company uh, discloses, we, we suffered a data breach. We had this bad cybersecurity thing happen to us. Yeah, so cybersecurity is a risk. It's just like any other risk. That is to say the risks can materialize. Risks often materialize. But cybersecurity as a broader process is one that merits thinking within the company that goes beyond the likelihood of risk. Materializing. That is to say, what are you doing to both mitigate losses once the risk actually materialized and to prevent it to the extent that you can? And where companies should be embarrassed is that when they don't employ even the most basic cybersecurity measures, like, say, end to end encryption or two factor authentication or things that we've now come to take as basic security, basic security controls. If they don't employ that, they should be called out. 
and enforcement. So speaking of enforcement uh, and uh, returning back to the earlier part of the, the discussion, we've said a little bit about uh, administrative uh, agencies and the administrative state. The FTC enforces something yeah. called uh, Gramm-Leach-Bliley, um, which is a, a law that deals with uh, financial institutions and actually several agencies uh, uh, enforce that law. The uh, Department of Health and Human Services does HIPAA-related enforcement. That is the uh, health insurance insurance uh, portability and accountability act there are two a's one p uh, for listeners who might be confused about that um so there, there are a lot of administrative agencies but you also had mentioned private law mechanisms or institutions um what what's the role what are private law institutions here and uh, what's their role in the cybersecurity landscape Yeah. And the answer is that to some extent, because of the overt involvement of um, federal administrative agencies operating through sectoral regulation on the federal level, um, um, the the role of private common law based um, regulation of cybersecurity is one that is kind of growing and subject to, to an evolution, I think, toward law. How do we conceptualize cybersecurity negligence? What are duties of care in this space is is a hard question to answer, in part because of certain restrictions on standing grounds that plaintiffs have when coming before these courts. They need to articulate some form of material particular harm, in part under Article 3 of our Constitution, which has been adopted in other state constitutions, so, so states adopt similar standing requirements. And so many times that there is a data breach, these plaintiffs have a hard time demonstrating what that particularized harm is that they suffered. And as a result, many of these cases get dismissed. And so there's not as much of an evolution of a common law on the state courts as there is a common law of the FTC. Which <laughs> yep. I know that's so for uh, uh, listeners who might not be familiar with this idea, the, uh, the idea of standing means that courts won't hear cases unless there's something that they can actually do about it if uh, the plaintiff wins. So uh, Asaf, you look at me funny and it hurts my feelings. I can't sue you and have the court say, Asaf, you are mean to Gus. You need to do something. There there needs to be some uh, concrete harm there. And with uh, things like data breaches and a lot of cybersecurity incidents, it's clear that something went wrong, something bad might have happened, but it's unclear frequently what the actual harm is that a court could do something about. So the courts have been reluctant to get involved in these cases. Is that basically right? That's that's exactly right. And so that's been a an, a, an area ripe for scholarship. And in the last few years, Ignacio Cofone, Daniel Citron, many, many of our colleagues have written about privacy harms and trying to provide courts some guidance on how to be able to still treat these evolving harms as something that we can consider as particularized despite Supreme Court guidance like. So clearly, if I hack into someone's computer, though, I've done something problematic. So I I hack into Google's systems or NASA's systems and steal information or uh, I hack into critical infrastructure and cause a a generator to overheat and need to be uh, repaired or replaced. Have I uh, violated any laws when I do that? Yeah, so 
we have a whole body of criminal statutes that might try and regulate this, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act or uh, various kinds of state and damage under the CFAA, where in part the conceptualization, conceptualization of damage is some kind of an impairment over the integrity of the data. So say I only take the data, a copy of the data, but you still have full access. Is that an impairment on integrity? These are the kinds of debates that we have, even in the criminal context, that are making it difficult for prosecutors, just as much as in the private sector, uh, to be able to bring claims. Yeah, a, a related practice. topic, uh, especially with the CFAA, is if I hack into someone's systems and one of the things uh, that they claim is a damage is that they need to do some investigation to find out if I caused any damage and they need to upgrade their security to be better. Well, is that actually damage when they had to upgrade their security? That, that's something they already should have done. So how do we uh, uh, actually attribute their response to uh, an attack um, in the context of assessing damages there? Yeah, and I should say that also manifests in the private litigation under the CFAA. So, for example, a recent complaint that was just filed by the EFF against Dark Matter, a cyber surveillance tech company, one of the allegations there is that that surveillance company assisted the UAE in surveilling a human rights activist. And the activist, one of her claims for damages is the fact that she and her household had to change phones. So again, we're kind of coming up against the same definitions here. Is this the kind of damage? The so at some level, what one of the questions in this entire area seems to be who's responsible for when bad things happen. And I guess this, this goes back to, you said cybersecurity is about risk management. With, with risk management, do we blame the crack in the sidewalk when you trip over it? Or should you have been paying attention and be careful about where you're walking and how you're walking? Well, it was someone's responsibility to maintain the sidewalk. So is it their responsibility for not having maintained the sidewalk, figuring out how we're going to say or who we're going to say should have been there in the first place avoiding these harms, even when there might be a bad actor involved, gets uh, drawn up into the analysis? Yeah. I'd say even more broadly is that the nature of cybersecurity risks are particularly the kind that merits a broader thinking that, that really incorporates a public-private partnership. That is to say that the entities that best understand certain elements of this risk are the kind that um, possess information that the general public doesn't have access to. Right? When you think about cybersecurity as a national security risk, now can we really expect small to medium businesses to have an understanding of this evolving risk if they don't have the, 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 the access to resources or capacities to, to be able to understand it? And so there's kind of a whole array or holistic approach way of thinking about cybersecurity, which requires us to understand this as a multi-layered risk that merits the involvement of uh, and the whole assortment of multi-state. Yeah, can you say a bit more about the, the national security and even the um, international, international law, um, law of armed conflict level concerns in cybersecurity? We, we've been talking about cybersecurity kind of as a, I'm a company and I get hacked, or I'm a, a customer of a company and my data has been breached. It, it turns out that 
if I experience a ransomware attack, that might have been caused by a group of uh, hackers from Russia who kind of have some light affiliation with the Russian government or some affiliations like that. What, what, how, how does the domestic relate to the national and international here? Right. I, I, I can't help but note the fact that we're having this uh, discussion in the wake of a Russian invasion, a territorial invasion into Ukraine. And what I think cybersecurity risks on the international level demonstrate is that governments now have capacities to engage in a whole array of below the obvious threshold of physical manifestations of violence um, and still cause significant economic, social, um, and, and cultural harms in, in various societies. It is precisely for that reason that the UN has been involved for many years now in various efforts to try and set norms for um, good cybersecurity behavior. Uh, that includes a group of governmental experts, the UNGGE, and the open-ended working group, the UNOEWG. All of these bodies are trying to set norms for what would be acceptable or unacceptable behavior. So, for example, can you engage in attacks against critical infrastructure? And how do we even define the concept of critical infrastructure to set certain rules of the world. The same is also true for various forms of cyber espionage in the regulation of those. Uh, so let, let's uh, come back to uh, really where I, I started the, the conversation, noting people are surprised when I say I teach cybersecurity law and policy at a law school. Isn't this a technology issue? You also teach uh, cybersecurity law and policy. What, what are your views on the, the pedagogy in this area, the teaching uh, of this field and this material, and, and really the direction uh, that and our role in uh, the field? Yeah. I think that this is a fascinating area for anyone interested in the evolution of pedagogy. Really, the rise in cybersecurity law and policy courses is, is a recent phenomenon. I'd say that the early courses came out in various variations of them, uh, kind of in the early 2000s. Early 2000s. And, and, and courses are taking various uh, shapes, and there's no one-size-fit-all, fit in part because of the various constituencies that we serve with these courses. Some of these courses are directed solely for a law school audience, others have a combination through MS programs that includes business school audiences and informatics or computer science audiences or international affairs and policy students. And so finding the right balance between the technological elements of the material, the political science elements of the material, the legal and the business, combining all of them together is a really hard challenge for law professors. Yeah, at, at the same time, it, it makes teaching and learning this material both really, really hard because there's so much of it and no one can be an expert in more than just a small portion of the, the subfields that make up the, the macro field of cybersecurity. But at the same time, it's just fun and invigorating because but before I started working in this area, I never thought about uh, or frankly knew anything about um, the, the law of armed conflict and international humanitarian law. And that, that's a central issue in the field. So for those who are interested really in a, a very true uh, lifetime learning commitment and opportunity, this is a great field. But I, I, and I also want to say a word to our colleagues. I, I still 
have conversations with some who wonder whether or not cybersecurity law is a field that merits its own course slash courses in law school. And I think that it's, it's even if this type of conversation, I, I think it doesn't, but even if it did have merit, say, 10 years ago, I think we've reached a point in the maturity of, of the case law and the maturity of the materials. And here I talk about the existence of actual textbooks and casebooks, thus you yourself are an author of one of them, that are now justifying the existence of these sorts of courses. And I should say, if you don't offer cybersecurity law and policy courses to your students, you're also doing them a disservice, both because there's tons of jobs out there for cybersecurity lawyers, as the regulation continue to increase, so does the need for lawyers to help support uh, those efforts. But it's also the case that even if you're not gonna be a cybersecurity lawyer, even if you're just a regular lawyer, you're going to need to think about cybersecurity in the context of your practice because you yourself might be the subject of a hack or a cybersecurity breach. Yeah, I'll go even a small step further and say, just look at the range of materials we've spoken about in the last 15 minutes. We have uh, uh, some constitutional law, we have torts, uh, there are contracts in there, there's administrative law, criminal law, international law, national security law. You could almost go so far as to say you could teach an entire two or three years worth of law school curriculum from the perspective of cybersecurity law. So uh, that that might be um, uh, taking an even more aggressive position than uh, you're taking uh, as to whether this should be a class. No, this should be the class. And it it turns out, Asaf, that I actually invited you uh, on because uh, there's been some recent developments in an area that's uh, near and dear to both of our hearts, cybersecurity insurance. Um, So we're going to take a brief break. And when we come back, uh, we will turn to talk about cybersecurity insurance. Hi, listeners. I'm Lysander Marquez. And I'm Elspeth Magilton, and we're the producers of Tech Refactored. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our show. One of our favorite things about being producers of Tech Refactored is coming up with episode ideas and meeting all our amazing guests. We especially love it when we get audience suggestions. Do you have an idea for Tech Refactored? Is there some thorny tech issue you'd love to hear us break down? Visit our website or tweet us at UNL underscore NGTC to submit your ideas to the show. And don't forget, the best way to help us continue making content like this episode is word of mouth. So ask your friends if they have an idea too. Now, back to this episode of Tech Refactored. And we are coming back talking with Asaf Lubin, a professor at the Indiana University Maurer School of Law about cybersecurity. And we are going to turn now to talk about cyber insurance and what it can or cannot do to address the cybersecurity concerns we have been talking about, as well as some recent developments in the field. Asaf, can you just start by telling us a little bit about the history of cyber insurance policy? So before the break, we talked about cybersecurity as a risk. And if cybersecurity is a risk, then obviously we might want to turn to insurance as a way to transfer that risk. So cyber insurance, just like any insurance policy, transfers the risks from the potential victim to an insurance company, say a commercial insurer, in exchange for a premium. And the history of these types of insurance policies go 
quite a long way back. Uh, they start with errors and emissions policies that go back to the 1980s with the introduction of computers to more to larger swaths of our production lines and our areas of public activity. But one of the biggest kind of coalescing moments around cyber insurance occurred in 2000 with what I hope most of the audience would remember as Bug 2K, when I tell it to my students, many of them don't know what I'm talking about. But that was that moment where we were all fearful when the computers will turn January 1st, 2000, that planes will fall from the sky and everyone will buy an insurance to protect themselves. And then the last big development here in the United States occurred with data breach notification laws, which began in 2003 in California and now spread across all 50 states. Those came with a lot of costs associated with them because if you had a data breach, you needed to open a notification center and you need to pay for social security monitoring and all of that came at a cost. And so to this day, cyber insurance policy's number one claim has to do with data breach notification and the whole area of data breach uh, responses. So when I am buying a a cyber insurance policy, first, I'm probably going to be a company buying one of these policies. Individuals, uh, as I understand it, tend not to have these sort of policies, though. I guess that, that, uh, well, I I, I was going to, uh, let me, rewinding a a little bit, uh, though I I guess individuals might have coverage uh, through maybe uh, umbrella policies or their homeowner's insurance for some types of cyber coverage. I I guess I I want to start by asking, well, first, am I right about individuals? That's kind of a a side question. But uh, the type of coverage that you were just describing seems to generally be tied to uh, specific types of claims. The the Y2K bug, um, data breach uh, notifications, uh, and things like that. Are there umbrella uh, cyber incident policies uh, that companies get nowadays? Yeah, so I'll I'll take each of those questions in turn. Just briefly on the first point, it used to be the case that individual cyber insurance was not really a thing, and that is significantly changing now, both as an add-on to existing property insurance and as a standalone cyber insurance for individual. That is now 25% of the market here in the United States, and it can cover a lot of things that you might not expect cyber insurance policies to cover, like cyberbullying. There's now certain harms from cyberbullying that are covered by individual cyber insurance policies. What used to be an access line is now becoming a common product. But you're still absolutely correct. The majority of the policies go to businesses. And in that context, the two primary coverage areas, just like in most insurance policies, are first-party harms and third-party harms. So in the first-party category, we'll find various harms to the company itself. That could be Uh, cyber extortion, the pain of the ransom, which is a big controversial thing, or forensic costs incurred in the investigation of a data breach, or various notification costs of the kind that I described before. But then there's the third-party liability coverage, and that's, say, the liability to third parties in the context of a class action suit, or various kinds of uh, liability to administrative agencies, like the ones we talked about before, say the SEC, if they subject you to a fine. So how how effective has cyber insurance been at, uh, I guess, is it intended to prevent these harms or really just cleaning up after bad things happen? Yeah, so I'll say that the jury is to some extent still out on this question, in part because 
cyber insurance policies since the 2010 are certainly a different kind of product on the market than the kind of the, the early cyber insurance policies that I was describing before. And that one is still evolving. The recent uh, rise in cyber attacks in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, which had all of us working from home and therefore working remotely and online, had resulted with an increase in claims, which has meant for many companies, insurance companies, the need to change their policies to restrict liability in part by setting lower caps or introducing more exclusions. And that also impacts the abilities of some of these insurers uh, to actually effectively regulate the market. As we increase the insurance gap, we're thereby also increasing or limiting the ability of the insurers to effectively regulate. There's been some studies. Some of them are coming out in a special symposium by the Connecticut Insurance Law Journal in the next few months that have suggested that cyber insurance has so far not done what we at hope it would do which is to engage in private regulation. Yeah, so the the rough idea there is that insurance companies, they don't like paying out on their policies. So what they uh, have an incentive to do uh, frequently is make the entities that they are insuring more safe uh, or reduce their risk. So by having insurance companies come in and look at uh, your uh, cybersecurity policies and how you handle your data and everything, they're going to educate you and help you improve your cybersecurity and stuff like that. And I I know I I was a big proponent of that theory uh, several years ago, but uh, as you're suggesting, Asaf, that really doesn't seem to have played out in recent years. Do you have any sense, uh, if that is true, that that hasn't been playing out, uh, what the cause uh, for that failure is? Yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of institutional limitations on cyber insurers and their ability to do that in the same way that, say, fire insurance is capable at lowering the likelihood of fires. And, and I think I'll, I'll maybe I'll, I'll name two, although we can talk about probably a dozen. But one is the actuarial challenge of cyber insurance. That is the ability to underwrite and effectively price cyber insurance policies. So to be able to incentivize better insurers, insured entities who are doing a good job in their cybersecurity practices. That depends on the ability of the insurer to understand what are good cybersecurity measures and to be able to effectively assess those through the use of the primary tool that insurance companies use to underwrite, which is questionnaires. So if the tool we're using is a questionnaire, you're only as good as your ability to ask the right questions and to expect good, good and detailed responses, responses from your insurer. So in the wake of that, what insurance companies have tried to rely on is insure tech, various kinds of technologies that are supposed to assist them in engaging in various sorts of monitoring of networks. And in fact, they will um, incentivize you to work with some of their uh, assessment companies by saying, if you work with my company and get monitored regularly by them, say, we will lower your premiums by, by a certain amount. And so now there's a whole market that supports the insurance market. But again, that is still evolving and, and it hasn't taken a clear shape yet. And so much of this goes back to the, the idea that the entire field and the entire technology, frankly, of computers and the Internet 
we're talking something that's literally only 30 to 50 years old. So we're, we're still figuring out a lot of this stuff. Um, so how do we actually do security is a great question and it's a hard question. And you, you mentioned uh, the pandemic and the transition to work from home where suddenly a lot more companies were sending information and dealing with people remotely. It's a lot easier to pretend to be someone else, forge identities and things like that when you're working remotely. You suddenly have employee home computers that are connected to employee home networks. That's much harder to secure. It's much harder to monitor how they're going to be used. And you have employers having to open up their networks, making it easier for folks to get in and doing so very frequently on an ad hoc last minute uh, sort of basis. So again, we're just figuring out how to live in this new world, which makes it really hard to know how to do it securely when we're just trying to figure out how to do it at all. Let, let's turn. Yeah, go ahead. And, and I'll say on top of that, there's also an evolving regulatory environment. So it's not only that the technological and threat environment that continues to change, but so much of the regulations around cybersecurity are recent. We've talked about some of them, right? The FTC's regulation of cybersecurity through regulations like the JLBA that you were uh, citing before, um, those are extremely recent uh, additions to the legal risk environment that companies have to deal with. And if our understanding, interpretations of these laws continues to evolve, insurance companies then need to respond to them, respond to them in real time. And that poses a new risk. And in addition, I'll, I'll say one last thing, which is that we also have a cyber aggregation risk problem. Here, the concern is so much of the risk that the insurance industry has to deal with is kind of centralized around, say, uh, a handful of cloud service providers or choked through various kinds of supply chain issues so that if there is a failure at some point around, around that chain, it could result in cascading effects across huge swaths of the mar market, denying insurers' abilities to effectively diversify their portfolios to be able to prevent going under in the case of a major cyber incident. Yeah, and th this is uh, getting into the weeds of insurance theory, but th this is such an important issue. Um, th the idea of insurance is that you can insure against rare risks for when they happen. So you have a uh, hundred people all paying into a pool for the incident that's going to happen to one out of a hundred or two out of a hundred of those individuals. So on, on net, uh, the pool, it's ultimately insuring itself. But when you have these correlated risks or single choke points, as I, I think you refer to them, suddenly when the bad thing happens, it's not one or two of those hundred individuals are affected, but it's 80 or 90 of them affected and insurance just doesn't work uh, in those sorts of circumstances. I, I want to uh, throw a hypo at you, a hypothetical question um, that will tease out some of the other issues that uh, uh, we should try and touch on. What happens, let, let's say I am a large conglomerate shipping company. Uh, I don't choose that example for any particular reason. Um, and I, uh, I experience a significant ransomware attack. 
And there is evidence to suggest that that ransomware attack was coordinated by a subnational uh, ransomware gang that has loose affiliations or suspected affiliations with a, a nation state government, let's say Russia. Again, I'm not picking this for any reason whatsoever. And I call up my cyber insurance company and say, we've experienced a ransomware attack. We'd like to make a claim. Well, what's uh, the response going to be? <laughs> yeah, completely random question. Well, the answer would be, let's look at your policy for a second. And the question will be, what policy is it in the first place? In the cyber insurance market, we have a phenomenon called silent cyber. Silent cyber is the situation where you're relying on general policies, say a property and casualty insurance policy or an errors and emissions and that policy doesn't explicitly exclude cyber. That's where most of the claims that came from, say, NotPetya, in the example you gave, that generated a lot of the claims going to court because those policies were not standalone unique policies with tailored language for the cyber age. They were old policies with ambiguous language. And so in the case of Merck, the shipping company, their policy had the following sentence in there. Loss or damage caused from hostile or warlike action in a time of peace or war should be excluded. And now the question becomes, what is hostile or warlike in cyberspace? And so the reality is that there have been now multiple academic articles that try to answer this. But what we get from the New Jersey judge who issued the ruling in the Merck decision is a very limited, if we hope for some treatises on, on, on peace and war. You didn't get any treatises like that. The judge simply says that we need to interpret the contract in the way that's most favorable to the insured, taking into account their reasonable expectations. And those reasonable expectations should include an understanding of hostile or warlike action as those involving only, quote, traditional forms of warfare. And given that cyber attacks like the one that allegedly Russia engaged in Ukraine was not traditional, this insurance exclusion did not apply. And therefore, Merck had to, uh, Merck was entitled to compensation. And, oh, go ahead. But yeah. No, whether or not that is the right interpretation of, uh, of that clause remains. So th this uh, is a, another bit of insurance theory, I guess we could call it, um, the idea of exclusions. And this is what insurers do when there are things that are very difficult for them to insure, because either, as uh, you discussed before, Asaf, um, it, it's hard to put the actuarial value on certain types of incidents. So it'd be really expensive to or uh, just unclear what the cost would be to insure them. Or they might be the sort of incidents that are highly correlated with other risks. Insurance companies just exclude them. So they say, we're not going to cover that sort of thing. If uh, we can't predict when war is going to break out, and if war breaks out, that is something so far outside of the realm of what we're trying to insure against that it's excluded from the policy. And it turns out with a lot of cyber-focused policies, another reason they might not have been as effective as uh, uh, many of us had hoped has been that the hard stuff to insure is getting excluded from the policies. And that's exactly the stuff that we were hoping these policies would actually help us better under uh, to better understand. That, that's exactly right. So, so now we're moving from this amorphous language of hostile or warlike 
which we don't know necessarily how to interpret in the cyber age, to just saying states-sponsored uh, attacks. So now there's a state-sponsored attack exclusion, and that's easier for an insurer to prove subject to intelligence reporting that are found admissible in a court, which, by the way, there's a whole evidentiary question here around attribution and how do we know that Russia actually did it? Your words in the hyper was loose ties. Would loose ties be sufficient under a preponderance of the evidence test? That, too, remains to be seen. But the bottom line that I will say is that we have a, um, evidentiary, uh, a, a, a language problem with these uh, policies because there's no uniform language being utilized and because regulation of insurance in the United States is done on a state-by-state basis. So our ability to mandate certain uniform clauses or language is, is non-existent. So we, we, should, uh, just, we should have touched on this uh, before when I introduced this hypo. Uh, listeners might be thinking, you're talking about a multi-billion dollar shipping company getting attacked by Russia. What's the relevance of this to me? Well, it, it turns out that ransomware attacks are one of the most common uh, forms of uh, cybersecurity incident out there. And many of them are coordinated by groups that are in other countries, sometimes with some connection to those countries' governments. And they target people on an, on an opportunistic basis. They don't target your small business because they think you're strategically valuable. They target your small business very frequently because they sent out a phishing attack, an email attack to uh, 50,000 email addresses. And one of your employees happened to click on a link in that email, or you're running an outdated piece of software that they randomly detected. They're, they're not targeting you individually. They're targeting you because through some bit of uh, circumstance, they found you and were able to get into your systems. Yeah, and even if you did not run a business, you might be, as just a citizen in this country, affected by ransomware attack because of the fact that ransomware attacks also target various kinds of public entities, cities, school district, district, hospitals. We've already seen a case where one pregnant woman had her child die during pregnancy, in part due to certain alleged mal- medical malpractice, which she claims is the result of the fact that was that the hospital was under a ransomware attack, and that she claims again that she was not notified about, and had she been notified, she would have chosen to get medical um, services elsewhere, which goes to show you that ransomware can hit you even in the most indirect way. So last uh, uh, question before we start uh, (laughs) ransomwareing up, uh, wrapping up, uh, is about ransomware. Should people pay ransoms if they are affected by ransomware? Just as a a broad matter of policy, should we allow that? Should we encourage it? Yeah, that's really one of the, the hitting at the heart of how we conceptualize the ethical questions around various kinds of cybersecurity decision making. On the one hand, we might say that in certain extreme situations, say like the hospital example I was giving, it makes sense to not completely prohibit the payment of ransom. Say the hospital does not have the ability to recover in other ways. It did not have data stored and is not able to quickly come back on its feet. This could have real economic and social effects on the society. 
where paying the ransom might result in a quick fix that will be worthwhile if on the other side is potential death to individuals or significant bodily injury. On the other hand, every payment that we pay supports a criminal enterprise that continues to grow, and the result will be more ransomware attacks. And so the reality has been that while multi-agency guidance and reporting have suggested to individuals that the general recommendation is not to pay, our federal government has yet to completely prohibit the practice, and insurers have not all across the board denied indemnification in the case of payments. And so we're in a weird in-between space, and and the reality is that it's still to the state left to the individual decision of each victim. Well, Asaf, we've covered a ton of material in the last 40 minutes or so. I'll just hand it to you for any last uh, thoughts or ideas you want to leave us with. Yeah, I, I think that cyber insurance is going to remain one of the most exciting areas of thinking about cybersecurity harms and liabilities. So going back to Gus's original point that he wrote about this way back when, I think that the same theory, theoretical questions that Gus posed then still remain relevant here. And I'll I'll also say in that special symposium of the Connecticut Insurance Law Journal that I mentioned that is coming up, I have a piece that talks about ensuring evolving technology more broadly. As we think about other technologies from artificial intelligence to spacefaring technologies, The way insurance plays a role in this evolution could have certain parallels and similarities, regardless of the subject matter in question. And so thinking about the intersectionality between insurance and technology is something that we should all uh, continue to explore and think about. Well, thank you, Asaf. And uh, we will be sure to uh, put a, a link Uh, in the notes to this episode to that forthcoming symposium because these are just really great issues and I am sure that we will continue to talk about them for quite a while to come. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of Tech Refactored. I've been your host, Gus Hurwitz. If you would like to learn more about what we're doing here at the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, or you'd like to submit an idea for a future episode, you can go to our website at ngtc.unl.edu, or you can follow us on Twitter at UNL underscore NGTC. If you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you don't do that, we might need to hack into your account and leave the rating for you. Our show is produced by Elspeth Magilton and Lysandra Marquez, and Colin McCarthy created and recorded our theme music. This podcast is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series. Until next time, I'll be here to ensure your security is cyber.